This boy and girl are going to be well equipped when the time comes to take their places as worthy members of adult society. Aloha, y'all. This is Daniel Eisenman, the host of the Breaking Normal podcast, where my guests are all invited based on the frequency of synchronicity, all done in person, and all trailblazers and the breaking of all things normal. Aloha, y'all. Checking in from Boulder, Colorado with my new friend, Tez Steinberg, founder of United World Challenge, which I'm curious to know exactly what that is and what that means. The one thing I know for sure from the horse's mouth here is that he recently, he just got back from a trip, I guess, where you rode, you rode a watercraft. Yep. 23 foot boat. 23 foot boat from California to the, from the shores of California to the shores of Hawaii, Oahu to be exact. Exactly. Yeah. Land to land. Where did you start in California? Monterey Bay (laughs) on July 3rd. And as y'all, many of y'all know, the Breaking Room podcast, the schedule is synchronicity, and they're done in person. So we're here at the Tribe Top Mansion. That You were looking at a room. I'm not sure if it's going to work out for you or not. We might have a room available depending on when you listen to this. It's full. It's a house full of awesome ecopreneurs, as I would call myself. And you seem to be that as well. I, an ecopreneur, I mean like an entrepreneur that's doing something that's upgrading the environment instead of taking away from it. So I imagine that's a lot about what the United World Challenge is about. We'll get into that today. <laughs> so. All right, when did you start this trip? What was the date? I began rowing on July 3rd, so that was the start of the row, but I'd been preparing already for almost four years at that point. July 3rd, 2019? 2020. 2020. We're in 2020. Okay, so, wow. So you did this in the, you, you really quarantined. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was uh, social distancing to the max. At some points during the row, the people nearest to me were in the International Space Station. <laughs> Can you say that again so we can think about that? I want to think about that one more time. At some points, while I was in my rowing boat called Moderation, the people closest to me were in outer space. Wow. Now, my understanding, Hawaii is the most geographically isolated and pop- densely populated place on Earth. Is that correct? Not Hawaii? densely populated. But the um, combination of the two? Or that no? may be, uh, that, I don't know about the intersection of those two. I know for sure it's the most re- remote archipelago in the world. That's certain. Um, some of the islands are not very populated at all, but uh, I think if you cross map remote archipelagos and high populations, yes, you might get that. But it, and what is an archipelago, by the way, exactly? It's a chain of islands, as okay. I understand it. All right. So can you explain your intention and what, what, where did this, you say you were preparing for four years. So did you know you were going to take off four years before at July, 2020? No, no. Uh, okay. What uh, was, I thought tell, it would take, take us, me less time then. <laughs> can we, can we remember the past <laughs> until the future? What, what yeah. happened? How did this crazy idea, this crazy breaking normal idea get birth to the conception and beyond? So it was just about four years ago to this day, actually, that the idea came to me. I was at a film, a film festival called Ocean Film Festival in London. I saw a film about a woman who had rowed around the world, and she made a passing reference about how a rowboat self-writes. And I thought, wait a minute, does that mean a novice can basically get in a boat and row across an ocean? Turns out, yeah, basically you can. So that night, I started looking into it. A few weeks later, I said, I got to do this. I want to row across an ocean. And there's more to it than that, but it was October 2016 that I first started thinking about it. And from there... You know, it's a question of what do I want to do with this? That's a hell of an experience. It can raise funds for something I care about, awareness for causes that are important to all of us. And over time, the United World Challenge became the vehicle for my row so that it could be good to all of us. And then, so it was good to all of us. So what is it about? What is the United World Challenge about? What is it bringing awareness to? So the row, you know, starting the row began a few years ago, but the story goes back much farther. So when I was 17 years old, I won a scholarship to a school called the United World College of the Adriatic. It's an international high school in Italy. 200 students from 85 countries. You imagine. And all of us are on scholarships. What a cool university. What the heck? It's incredible. It's actually high school. It's called college because it's, you know, based on the British system. Uh, But it's high school. So, you know, you're 17, 18 years old. And all of a sudden, your closest friends come from all different backgrounds. And because everyone has a scholarship, it's not a question of how much can you pay. And that experience was incredible, you know, living and studying with students from all across the world. And it changed my life. And I wanted to pay that forward for other students ever since. 
So when I decided to row across an ocean, and at first I thought I was going to row across the Atlantic. So when I decided to row across the Atlantic, I set up the United World Challenge so I could raise funds and pay for that scholarship for new students. Wow. Now, is this a challenge? When, when I hear the word challenge, are you challenging other people to do this? Or what's the... I'm not telling your you, own personal Yeah, I, look, I'm not telling you to go get in a boat, but I think we all have an ocean to cross. We all have something in our lives that seems insurmountable, right? It might be a conversation you're avoiding. It might be uh, you, you have a vision for yourself. Like you say, you know, your purpose is hanging on the tip of your nose. Like, can you live your dreams and get paid to do it? There's so many excuses we have for ourselves. So my challenge to other people is be honest with yourself and get after it. You can do it, right? So that's really the call to action to me is I wasn't a rower. I'm not a sailor. I'd never been out to sea. And I just completed one of the hardest ocean rowing routes in the world and raised over $75,000 for scholarships and helped fund the collection over, of over a quarter million plastic bottles heading to sea, collect data on ocean plastics, airborne microplastics, for research at Scripps, all these things from following my heart. And so what I'm saying is there's so much that you can do if you just believe. Yeah, thank you for reminding us of that. And it's funny, following my heart brought me to Scripps a few times, more oh, really? than a few times as well. That, that especially Black Beach, that whole shoreline there in La Jolla, world-class surfing with world-class like institutes that are studying the ocean. Happy you brought that up. It's bringing up a lot of memories. $75,000 you raised, you said? When the match comes in, it'll be over seventy-five. Right now, I'm waiting on the match from one of my donors. But oh, match, meaning they were going to match whatever you... A donor, yep. A donor yeah. made a $10,000 donation on my last night in the ocean, and their company will, will do two to one. So once that two comes in, then it'll be a 75, which was the goal. It's nice. All right. So this July, you are taking off to, to row the ocean by yourself. And you're saying you've never done anything like this before? So I've done ultra marathons. I've done endurance sports, but it's very different to run for 35 hours than it is to row for 70 nonstop, you know? So I'd, no, I'd never been out to sea. There was, there was a lot of firsts. I mean, that's ridiculous. What, what about your parents, people that like were close in your life? What in the heavens were they thinking? Yeah. Well, people became supportive because they saw that I was committed to this, first of all. You know, when people, you express a crazy idea, but you don't really believe it yourself, people aren't going to rally to you and help you out. But when people look at you, and they always did, they looked at me and they said, holy crap, you're serious, and I can tell you're going to do this. Then people would come and support my family and strangers and everyone in between. So, like, I, when I started planning this, some of the hardest parts of, of ocean rowing is actually getting to the launch so you have to get a boat that's not you're not talking about just a little canoe you know it's a pretty high-end vessel there are all these other pieces that you have to line up and then it requires resources and i thought i'd be able to pull it off just with corporate sponsorship and my own means and after a few years of that i realized oh my god i'm not going to make it to the start line and one of the scariest parts of this whole project for me of the united world challenge was launching a crowdfund right because then i'm asking for support from other people but people from all across the world alumni from united world colleges others and we raised seventy-five thousand dollars that went to my cost right to be able to offer this project to the world and then on top of that we raised another 75 for the scholarships wow wow well i can so empathize with that because right now i'm being called to a project with the, what you just microdosed on before this podcast which was bison and elk liver nice yep. freeze-dried encapsulated I have a, I'm in the midst of a Kickstarter with 29 days to go where I have 12, 12 something thousand dollars to raise. And I'm realizing, yeah, it's good to turn on my Aladdin factor and ask for people, all my friends that I want to, to pre-order a bottle, like come up with some kind of creative constraint. I'll do it now. Okay. <laughs> right after this. Yes. Yes. I'm, uh, thank you. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. Because it's an all or none campaign and I have suppliers that are ready to sell me like a thousand pounds of liver today. And I'm like, <laughs> Oh my goodness. Cause that could be like $8,000 just for people that want to understand the supply chain I'm dealing with is like $8 a pound. They're not really cutting it. It's a wild project I've embarked upon, but I'm not here necessarily to make that the focus. I just can empathize <laughs> with the, the vulnerability and the authenticity and the initiation. Like I chose to do Kickstarter. Like I even talked to a guy, he's like, you know, there's a lot easier ways to raise $15,000, right? And I was like, yeah, but I want to prove for anyone that could just give me $15,000 in a whim 
that like people want this product and they do, they do. Yep. No, I just got to make sure they know about it. So I'm going to make some calls, many, many calls. You might be hearing from me soon, whoever you are. <laughs> um, so you got it. You, and then you're taking off, you're taking off in July. I, I want to know I'm a water man. I would say I've spent a lot of my life revolved around the schedule of the ocean, more the schedule of the ocean when the waves hit the shore and the winds and the tides and surfing. where I'm at surfing basically. And I believe I could, and many people could write many books about like the metaphor of surfing and life. And I bet the same goes for rowing and sailing definitely goes for poker. The ones that I empathize with most are poker and surfing. I'm like, <laughs> man, I could, I could tell parables for days. Um, but this you'd be beyond the walk, the talking of it. You really walk the talk and you took off on this journey from, from Monterey Bay, which is one of the most beautiful places in the world, I'd say, to Hawaii. <laughs> so, like, what happened? What happened from there? Like, or what, like, what was the golden thread? And then maybe I'll start asking <laughs> details from, like, golden, the start to finish the of golden that journey. Um, and I know there were sharks involved. I know there was all kinds of things involved. But I would like to, whatever comes up for you when I ask that right now. I was just so blown away by how beautiful the ocean is. You know, I've played on the beach. I've enjoyed water in different ways and I love the mountains and I love exploring but the open ocean is the most beautiful place I've ever seen this incredible blue we live on a jewel this planet is a jewel looking down at that water the light streaming through it is the most incredible experience of my life and being able to do that day after day after day really is, is pretty life-changing you know um, trying to integrate that now that I'm back on land what those experiences were I want to carry that forward how I can share that with other people because if I can bring back a taste of that for others I think it'll change the world and how much do you think your appreciation came from being by yourself that was huge it was huge because how often do we get the opportunity to really be with ourselves, to really reflect, to be able to sit down at what I call the food for thought restaurant, look at a menu top to bottom and decide what do I want today? What do I want this morning? What do I want this afternoon? I'm like, oh, I don't want to try that dish. That's a bit spicy. Well, you know what? There's no reason not to eat it. Like, and so being by myself, I was really able to reflect on some important things and get get clear and in a sense get to know myself even better and how many days were you out there by yourself from coast to coast 70 days 22 and a half hours and how long did you think it was going to take that was right in the middle to be honest i told everybody two to three months so i was right there right 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 in that middle range yeah and when you say self did I hear self-correcting? Self, self-supported as the row, but you mean the rowboat? Yeah, self-rights. Like, self-right. Like, so how do you do this? How do you? You said anyone so can I'm, do this. How the heck do I do this? Yeah, how do well, I do this? you get in a boat and you start rowing. <laughs> <laughs> I bet that would be the main, the main mission. But yeah, how do I know I'm on track? How does how all that work? So I've got all the equipment that any ocean-going vessel would have. I have a chart plotter, which is what you call a GPS in a boat. I have redundant chart plotters, handhelds, backups in case my main system went down. I have 250 watts of solar powering a 200 amp hour battery bank that charges all my electronics, my water maker to produce drinking water. Um, I've got... Did you have a backup water, like a straw or anything in case... Something? So a straw wouldn't do it. Um, in order to filter salt water, you need a really high pressure membrane. Um, I had a main unit that, that runs off of my system's electrical system, and I had a backup handheld. A backup handheld. Right. Now, yeah, go ahead. this is going to take, you know, to, you'd, you'd spend, I think, one to two hours to, you know, produce half a liter of water. Whoa. Yeah, so you really that's, don't want to, you really don't want to be using that. Yeah, okay, that's but that, time I Time you're not rowing as well. So. <laughs> I was just curious, but mm -hmm. keep going, keep going with the yeah, list. Yeah, so there me. is a backup, and I had uh, about, I want to say about 30 gallons, maybe 40 gallons, 43, if memory serves, 43 gallons of emergencies of water in case my systems broke down. That gives me enough to last 
several days at least before help would come. How is that stored in like literal gallons or like five gallon jugs or like a big one gallon jugs one that gallon are stashed jugs. in the hatches underneath my deck. So all of the food and and water and other supplies, a lot of those were stored in round watertight hatches beneath the deck. So under my feet, under the rowing seat, all those places, and it serves as ballast. So that, in the event of a capsize, the bottom of the boat is heavily weighted. The top of the boat has these cabins, which are basically air bubbles, if you think of it that way. And so if it's upside down, it's very unstable. It flips back over. And whenever I'm outside on deck, I'm tethered. Okay, good point. All right, is there any other, did you, was that the kind of layout of what you needed for a journey like that? Um, what was the, did you mention the food that you brought or no? I brought about half a million calories of food. Half a million calories. How in the <laughs> heavens do you measure that and what was it? What was it? Yeah, what were you, what were those half a, a million mix, calories A mix from? of dehydrated meals. I brought four to five per day. But, oh, my goodness, I couldn't eat that many. It, <laughs> I started off eating three or four a day, and then it went down to three, and then it went down to two, and then it went down to one, and I was just, like, forcing myself to eat these things by the end because you just get tired of them. Well, are you, how many calories are you burning? Are you saying you're rowing this the whole way? Is that how this works? Yeah, there's no sail, no motor, just oars. All right. So I'm so... rowing, and I'd row on average nine to 12 hours per day. Nine is the low end for ocean rowing, to be honest. So that sounds like a long, long day at the office, but uh, it's pretty short for ocean rowing. I, I took it easy, believe it or not, and enjoyed myself out there. But nine to 12 hours of rowing a day, and then I'd burn anywhere from four to 6,000 calories a day. So I lost probably 15 or 20 pounds, and I was eating about 4,000 calories a day. <sighs> That's good for people to wrap, wrap your mind around that one. I almost want to make them repeat it, but you can rewind it if you want to. Now, <laughs> when did you sleep, and how does that work? It depended, man, because the, it's an adaptive experience. I respond to what the ocean presents me with. And rowing away from a continent is very different from launching off of an island. So, uh, in the history of ocean rowing, most ocean rows are island to island. Much higher success rate. The main ocean row in the world that people do is from the Canary Islands to the Caribbean, and that's what I started off planning I would do in December 2019. Canary Islands in Europe? Yeah, so they're Spanish territory off the coast of Morocco. Wow, that's a, quite the row. So, that's yeah, the main it's, one. It's the like, that's like the... Because uh, you launch into the trade winds, right? So you get off the island and you're already in an oceanic weather system that's supporting Starting conditions. from the Canary Islands. Yep. Okay. So from the east and then finish in the Caribbean, the west. It's the same route Columbus sailed, right? So when, when explorers were trying to figure out how to cross that. the ocean, they're like, wow. well, guess what? They're trade winds, right? And... So, I was living in London when I decided to row across an ocean. Being based in London, it seemed to make the most sense, do the route that most other people do. Uh, when I say most, it's still a pretty small community. You know, about 100 people have solo rowed the Atlantic, maybe 120. Um, How many have done the one you did? I was the eighth. There are nine total now. One other woman <laughs> finished about 24 hours after me. Oh. Uh, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're the only two who went this summer. But it's not like there's all, a lot out there. But were y'all at all on the same trip? We like, both did our did own, did our own thing. Did y'all see each other? Oh, I saw her light on my last night on the ocean. That's it. About two, three miles off my, uh, off my port <sighs> bow. <laughs> yeah, when we were both approaching Hawaii. So it's this lady, yeah. Her name's Ro Leah, and uh, yeah, she rode solo as well across the across the Pacific this winter, this summer. Um, anywho. Where were we? I'm, I mean, I'm just amazed by the timing. Is there a specific timing that you have to do this? Like, is yeah, there like a, a window? There are seasons. Okay. It, you know, it, doing it in hurricane season, not optimal. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So you so, did it right at the end of hurricane? I, mean, I thought hurricane season was still in July in a way. In the Atlantic. Not in the Pacific. It's What's different. The, okay. It's different. Um, I would need, to, yeah, I did need to be off the water by, I de most, most rows on the Pacific from U.S. to Hawaii. <laughs> And when I say the most, eight, you're done well, with there's, the there's a handful more people who've done it in teams, teams of two, three, and four. Okay. And so eight, nine people have done it now. I was the eighth. Um, about 20 or so have tried, right? And of those, of those um, nine, just myself, the other woman, Leah, who just finished, and one other person got it on their first try. I was the only novice to get it on their first try. So it's, it's extremely difficult as a solo. Because yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, go ahead. Because 
to get back to your sleep question. I just realized where we're tracking to. Yeah. Okay. As a solo, you have to sleep. I get off the oars and there's no one rowing. Yeah. If you're in a team, you do shifts. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and so as a result, teams can launch off of continents pretty easily. A solo typically needs to launch off of an island because the continent has weather patterns that disrupt what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. The warm air off the continent rises, pulls in a sea breeze. So the wind pulls you back to shore. Mm-hmm. At the same time, when you're near shore, which way are the waves going? Towards shore. It's only when you get out in the open ocean that waves might be going a different direction. Mm-hmm. So what this meant is the first few weeks while I was rowing off of shore, I was facing winds that uh, started pushing me south, thankfully, but waves were coming from the west and, and pushing me back to shore. Now, there are also countercurrents. I spent a week crossing what's called the Cali Current, which is this winding current that comes from the Pacific Northwest and runs down along the west coast of North America doing all these S-curves. And it's pretty quick. You can go up to a, a knot, one and a half knots. My weather router was routing me around parts of it where the current was slowest, but it still meant that when I got off the oars, I would often be dragged the wrong direction. So in, those, in that week, I was doing a three-on, two-off as much as I could. Row for three, rest for two, which is brutal. That's not fun. The rest of the time, I tried to sleep at night. You were doing three hours on, two hours off? Is that what you're saying that was brutal? Around the clock. Around the clock. Wow, so you were doing that whole like polyphasic sleep thing too at the same time in a way. You need, you need like five days to really get into that and pull it off. Oh, man. And I would go a day or two and then break and nap and just like completely set myself back again. I have other questions about like coffee and alcohol and other things. But <laughs> before I forget, what was the biggest challenge? Was there a time when you were like, oh, yeah, and you said people tried. What do you mean people tried? They, they In had, history, people they had have attempted around this. Or yeah. they, didn't, they didn't They weren't lost it? at sea. So. Okay, what happens usually? I mean, there have, people... been, there have been people who have been lost at sea in ocean rowing. But um, between North America and Hawaii, none on that specific portion of you know, on that route. But um, I, 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 I beg my Beg your pardon, actually, that's not true. There's a very accomplished ocean rower this summer, um, Angela Madsen. She's uh, rowed several oceans before, and this was her second attempt to row from California to Hawaii this summer, and she was lost at sea. Second? Two in, she wanted to do two in one summer? No, no. Second time in the summer? Second yeah. attempt. Her previous attempt was, I think, two years ago. Oh, wow. And um, I think it was a mechanical failure then, wow. but... Um, There was an issue, a storm was coming up for her, and she got in the water to fix a piece of her sea anchor, like the way this underwater parachute that stabilizes the boat, and the shackle that connects the sea anchor to the boat, something was off with that. She got in the water and wasn't able to climb back in. And so she died uh, in late June of this year, and that was a few days before I set out. And and did so, you hear that news before oh, yeah. you set out? Yeah, wow. yeah. I mean, wow. it's a small, small world ocean rowing, and, wow. and so that you know, rattled me quite a bit before I headed out. Um, so that said, you know, although people get lost at sea, most of the, most of the times that people don't succeed in a row is not because they pass away. It's because of some technical issue and they get brought back to land. And in my case, the, the point at which I thought, holy crap, I'm not going to make it had to do because my, my seat boat broke my rowing seat. The wheels snapped off, bolts broke, and I was trying to figure out how could I keep this thing moving because without a rolling seat or, a, as I later created, a sliding seat, you don't have leverage on your oars. So two weeks you in. You mean like this rowing machine? Yeah, this rowing machine. Right that's here. like in the boat too? It moves? The, the seat moves? Absolutely. I, I, yeah, I've, never, I've never rowed a boat, <laughs> actually. Yep. I mean, I've rowed a canoe, but I don't think sure. I've rowed a boat. Paddle. Like, yeah, pa- paddle. So, that's called paddling? That's saying? called paddling. Okay, you have, so I've never you rowed. You have a paddle in both of your hands? Yeah, I've like, never Like, both of your rowed. hands on a paddle, whereas oars, you know, are locked onto the side of the boat. Wow. It's a different mechanism. So you're saying the thing that moved your seat broke? Yeah. Whoa. And when was this in the trip? When? Uh, like, week two. Whoa. So what, how, yeah, tell me about your thought process and those Crap, man. Uh, experience. Yeah, um... When it first happened, when the bolt first broke, and I spent a whole day trying to figure out how to fix it, because I didn't have a spare. (laughs) I had one spare bolt for my rowing seat, and I used that on day seven to repair the tiller arm that connects my steering system to my rudder. That snapped. 
it's a carbon piece that snapped off and I MacGyvered that with a bolt and epoxy and a whole workaround fix. Anyway, a week later, guess what? I needed that bolt I just glued into my rudder. And without it, it became a question of, okay, how can I make this thing work? That first day, I was like, all right, I got this. This is just a bump in the road. And I spent the whole day fixing the seat, got it working again, taking inventory of the bolts I have. What could I do to make them work enough? And I got it to work enough. That was great, you know, pushed through. And then a week later, bent. Another bolt's bent and another bolt's bent. And it just got to a point where they kept bending and I was working on it every day getting farther and farther from land, rebuilding this thing, taking chunks of wood, spare wood I had taken with me and a saw, stuffing it inside of the frame to hold the bent bolts in place, remaking bearings with plastic on the bolt, melting it down, and then reinserting bearings inside of the wheels because the bent bolts were grinding my bearings to dust. And then the wheels would go dunk, 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 and then get stuck so my seat wouldn't slide. So I was fucking scared to be honest because I'm getting farther and farther from land with a seat that's working less and less and although I could get picked up by a passing boat in the middle of the ocean then I abandoned my boat that I just spent you know half of every paycheck for the past three years building and then uh, loaded with a bunch of equipment that people gave me on a crowdfund and like the last thing I want to do is walk away from this thing so it was super scary and then you innovated some sort of solution with a what do you mean <laughs> like it was you- it was step by step like I would make a fix and it would work a day and make a fix and it'd work a day. And I just kept chipping away at it. Um, and the final solutions, well, I realized, look, these wheels are sliding on tracks on either side of my seat or they're rolling on tracks rather. What if I just lock the wheels down so they're not spinning? I don't have to worry about a bent bolt. I don't have to worry about my bearings. I just have a, a, a wheel. It's a rollerboard, rollerblade wheel. Really dense, hard plastic. And pretty smooth. So I thought, can I just lock this thing down and then slide back and forth on the seat? Because, well, you asked about eating. I brought uh, five of those like 84-ounce Costco coconut oils for supplements, for my food, for my meals, for shakes. So I had plenty of, plenty of coconut oil. So I ended up filling up a honey squeeze bottle, like a little honey bear that has a valve in it so it wouldn't spill. Fill that up with the coconut oil because it's liquid by this point. It's like over 100 degrees every day. And I would just lie, lock down the wheels on the seat. I'd slide it back and forth. When a wave would come overboard and get salt and mix with the coconut oil, I'd just wipe it clean because that would make it stick. And i just squirt on new oil. And I did that several times a day. And it was super lubed up. It also became super dangerous because you're on a tiny boat that's rocking all over the place, and guess what? Everything is oiled. <laughs> it's a mess. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I love that there's something profound that you had to partner with a coconut to get through this trip. Coconut because that's how I understand how coconuts work. They're like a coconut falls off a palm, and then it might travel to another island across <laughs> the ocean, and then it, can get, it becomes a sprout. There's just something like the the power, like the, the power you of the coconut. Had to, you, you had to partner with the coconut to make it. <laughs> the coconut did save the day, dude. I it, mean, I'm having like imagery, though, of you being out at night by yourself on that ocean. And that's just like, what? That, that seems like that could, I could imagine most people might get a little panicky thinking about that. Night can be scary, especially at the start. You know, when I rode out to sea, um, <laughs> 30 minutes into the row, I had a collision. I got hit by a fishing vessel in Monterey Bay. And I swear to God, this guy was drunk because he hits me. And I was like, what the hell? Now I'm rowing facing backwards, right? So I can't see where I'm going, which is fine in the open ocean. And to be fair, I was only standing up and looking behind myself every five or 10 minutes. Now I launched at midnight, about 12.05. There was no boat traffic. I didn't see any boat traffic coming in or out of the bay. Thought it was pretty clear and I'd stand up and check, but guess what? I didn't check enough. And so all of a sudden I hear from behind me a diesel engine roaring and I stand up and look and it's clear by the time I stand up that it's too late and we're going to hit. So we collide, but thankfully he turns enough. I turn a little bit and kind of graze off the side of him. Now that, that uh, captain, he goes, I thought you were a buoy. I'm like, why do you go straight for a buoy, dude? Anyways, like, I couldn't recognize your lights. I'm a rowing boat, so my lights don't make sense. You know, I've got the red and the green, the port and the starboard right next to each other. 
So if you're trying to read a boat's lights, it doesn't make sense. But what that did to me is it made me want to keep my lights on at night. Even when I was two, three, four, five, six, ten days offshore, there's no one around. And eventually, one night, I'm like, look, the lights at this point, they're just on for me to make myself feel like someone's going to see me, but then I'm not seeing anybody out here. I'm out here alone. And I flip off the lights, and I just, you know, try to calm my nerves about the fact that I'm out in the middle of the ocean by myself. Yeah, yeah, that's a rare, that's a rare uh, species. Y'all are a rare type. I don't know how many people have done that. Very few, yeah. But uh, those of us who do it often go and do it again. All right, also, <laughs> to make sure, because I, I could go on to so many... <laughs> Um, we can go on Cali Current, so I can go, yeah. <laughs> go anywhere here right now. I want to make sure I also include that you met when I first met you. You talked about this like uh, trash island that you had to go around potentially or go through. And I remember one of my previous podcast guests, Allison from Allison Adventures, I believe she was ta- she did a whole special a special on this where she like went to this island and wore like a bot- bottle bikini out of like trash. To bring more awareness to this. Is this what the United World Challenge is about and or what the heck is that about? Like I just want people to understand what you saw with your own eyes because very few have. Yeah, there's a hell of a lot of trash out there. It's incredibly sad. Incredibly sad. So there's a place called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. It is one of five oceanic gyres, which are collections of marine debris. It's a lot of plastic and microplastics that break down, as well as fishing nets, discarded fishing nets from vessels. And there are five of these around the oceans created by currents. The one in the North Pacific, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, is the largest of them all. It's twice the size of Texas. It is directly between North America, specifically California, and Hawaii. So imagine you know, a large portion of a continent, basically. It's just trash. Now, it's not an island of trash. It's like a soup. So you can't pick it up on satellites. But I tell you what, I'm sitting inches off the ocean surface. And there's no place better to see it. Not a sailboat. You're a few feet higher and you're going faster. But I'm going about two miles an hour. And with my head just three feet off the water, I could look in the water at any time in the middle of the ocean and just see specks. Little floating pieces. Other times I could reach in and pull out a whole handful of plastic. I crossed big chunks of net, net the size of my boat, the size of a car, floating fishing net. I saw plastic tr- crates like hampers. I saw boxes, rope, PVC pipe, plastic bottles, water jugs, and so many pieces that, of things I just can't identify, whether it's a plastic bag or other things. It's everywhere. And I went around the edge of it. I didn't even go through the middle, but I saw so much that it, it really is tough to see. I mean, going around the edge of something twice the size of Texas you're talking about, I mean, it seems like you have to go around the edge of that, right? So if you sail from Northern California to Hawaii, you go through the middle of it. And then you what know? happens? It just cuts through right, it cuts it's, right it's through. It's not like you have all these bottles bumping into each other, right? Okay. Um, it's dispersed, so that's why it's called a soup. Right, So you've got little chunks floating. You've got big objects mixed in here or there. I can look in and see them, but it's not like I have to push through it. And I asked you this before. I'm like, what an uh, interesting like, new ecosystem for like, what's under, what's going on underneath there. Is there like algae collecting other fish? Are there yeah, predators? Yeah, there's algae, barnacles. That, yeah, absolutely. Um, I p- pulled a big water jug onto my boat. I, when I first saw it, it was a really calm day. And so I was able to see it, and I said, holy shit, I'm going to go get that. And I thought it was a suitcase. You're out there in the middle of the ocean. You start going a little crazy. I'm like, there's my million dollars, Man, baby. Here I we go. Totally, I might like <laughs> even extend my trip like in that island because yeah. I would have that same delusion, optimistic idea. that like, so, I'm just gonna, No wonder I'm out here. I'm yeah. going to get this thing. <laughs> so I start cranking on the oars, turning the boat around, spinning it around, and I was like, oh, of course. It's a water jug. And I pull it up onto the boat. It's a big water jug, like uh, five gallons. And Familiar plastic or glass? Oh, plastic. It's plastic I wonder if the BPA-free take longer to buy a degree. Just I don't know, side man. Note, side yeah. question. <laughs> anyway, so you pull plenty it up. of it out there. And it's covered in hundreds of barnacles, hundreds and hundreds. And so I was like, fuck, I'm going to have to kill all of these things. 
which sucked because I was like, that. those are hundreds of beings which I'm going to personally exterminate because they're on trash. And I'm like, I can't throw this thing back in now. And so um, I pulled it out of the water. I emptied it. I put it on deck. And then I kept rowing. And I watched as these creatures you know, would stick out their frills to try and understand what is this new environment they're in. But they were now baking in the sun. And I picked that up at like maybe 6, 7 in the morning. The sun had just come up. And I watched them bake and dry out and die, hundreds of them, right in front of me for hours. It was, it was really sad. And then when they dried, I plucked them all off and, you know, kept that big piece of plastic to bring back to shore. And um, you were, so when you say they had, like, you, you didn't want to just throw the thing back in the water. You wanted to take a piece with you. Is that what you're saying? Well, that look, at this point, if, they... I, if I throw it back in, now I'm creating that plastic ocean, <laughs> aren't I? And then you had the paradox of seeing that you, that was the death of. Yeah. And those barnacles, are those, are those edible? I don't know. Which, what do you? I wouldn't eat those. They're, I mean, they're pretty small. Especially if they're, like, living on plastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I wouldn't. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So that, um, and now the, how does that tie into the United World Challenge? And the, is that, is this mostly to get people to go to that school or is it mostly, or is it partly revolved around this situation as well, that sea, these Texas sized soups of plastic? Yeah. So there's multiple parts to the United World Challenge mission. First and foremost, it's raising scholarships for the United World Colleges to pay for that scholarship that I got. And so I partnered with, there's 18 United World Colleges in the world. And I worked with UWC-USA, which is in New Mexico. And in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, our funds are for students of color from the US to attend UWC-USA. They offer partial scholarships to all of the students who are accepted. So the funds you raised will go to several students to offer them full rides. So mission one, raise funds to send students to United World Colleges. Now, to give you a little more context on that, these aren't just international schools. The first UWC was opened in 1962 after World War II because Europe just completely destroyed itself and it opened in Wales. They said, why do we keep fighting with each other? Well, because we don't know each other. So they said, can we take young people who are old enough to be able to engage in real discourse with diversity and other people and yet young enough to still change their minds? And so it proved to be a pretty effective model. Turns out when you know someone from another country, you're less likely to want to blow them up. <laughs> You're more likely to want to reach out and help out. Anyway, that's the mission, is to create a peaceful and sustainable future through education. So that's part number one of the United World Challenge, is pay for those scholarships. And at the same time, raise awareness, and fun, raise awareness about ocean plastic. I partnered with Ocean Bottle, which is a water bottle company that helps solve ocean plastic at the source. Going out in the ocean, collecting this plastic isn't going to solve it. 1% of the plastic in the ocean is at the surface. 9% is suspended. 90% is unaccounted for. And even if we were to deploy massive fleets of collectors collecting everything at the surface, it would take us 50 years before we even make a dent in the problem because the ocean is so big. The only way to solve this is at the rivers, at the source, where all this plastic heads into the ocean. So Ocean Bottle is partnered with Plastic Bank, which funds recycling infrastructure in the places it's needed most. So think about <laughs> nine of the rivers that are most polluting the oceans are throughout Asia, I think, Asia and Africa. And in these communities, there isn't recycling infrastructure. So what do they do with their plastics? Well, it ends up in the rivers and ends up flowing out. So ocean bottle, with every water bottle sold, it funds the collection of 1,000 ocean-bound plastic containers. So I partnered with Ocean Bottle, gave Ocean Bottles to my crowdfund backers, and funded the collection of about a quarter million plastic bottles from the ocean. So that's the second piece. And the third is to inspire people. You don't have to go to one of these schools to get inspired as a young person. You don't have to buy a water bottle to help solve the world and improve the world. But you can follow your dreams. You can do something courageous. And so when I, roll, when I summarize the United World Challenge, it's to inspire a more courageous world. And that can mean a lot of things. Wow, thank you. I'm happy I asked. I'm happy I got the non-negotiable questions in because that brought up a lot of good gold. Thank you. Thank you for all those intentions, missions, and manifestations in here walking the talk. 
rowing rowing the way. Now that I've, I've, there was one kind of funny question that they that they sell bottles of water, like plastic bottles of water. No, it's a, it's a it's a reusable water bottle. <laughs> okay, I was just like that yeah. would be a little no, ironic as no, well. No, it's it's <laughs> a reusable water bottle. Um, I do not have one with me right now, unfortunately, but it's an insulated reusable water bottle. The cap and cup are made of ocean plastic, and they fund a thousand bottles from being collected before they become ocean plastic. So it's a it's a solution. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, do you have footage available when any of this stuff? So if people that want to, like, I want to see what he saw, at least be, be a video. UnitedWorldChallenge.org. Okay. I shared photos and videos the whole way across, loaded those photos and videos on the route I traveled, so you can see when I pull out plastic from the ocean, where in the ocean I pulled it out. Nice. Um, and also shot a whole bunch of video. We'll be making a couple films later this next year. Okay. All right. Another interesting topic that just hit me. I don't know how it can't hit me because if you're watching the video of this, you'll see a nice uh, um, octopus fractal or what, what would you call that? Fractopus. A fractal. Is <laughs> <has> a fractopus <laughs> tattooed on his left uh, shoulder and beyond a little bit. What I, I, when I saw that when I first met you, I was like, it's funny you have that on your arm <laughs> because. I love eating animals. I love eating different animals. And I always haven't. I haven't always loved eating. I was a raw vegan, well, a famous raw vegan at one point with my brothers. <laughs> and, um, but the one animal I don't want to eat, and I still don't, I still don't know if I would. Maybe I would if I hunted it myself, but there's something in between me and the octopus that I got to figure out. I just don't want to eat octopus. Have you seen my octopus teacher? My octopus teacher or t-shirt? Teacher. No, what is that? It's a film on Netflix right now. It's about a South African filmmaker who befriends an octopus. And he's also a free diver. And he filmed his relationship with this octopus, befriending her, earning her trust, and eventually her full life cycle because they only live about a year. Um, she's a common octopus. I think the Pacific octopus can live, I think, Maybe up to four years. I'm not sure. But uh, that will help you understand why you intuit so much about octopuses. I'm so happy you brought that up. I'm so stoked to watch that. And I want to say that like, I, I also don't eat other animals. Like, I have no interest in eating dolphin, elephant. Sure. Um, I just want to clarify. I'm just saying there, that we, octopus we, we, is we a, common, yeah, a yeah. common edible food, though. That I'm like, yeah. that a lot of other people eat, seemingly like they'll eat it like chicken if it's at a restaurant. Yeah. And for some reason, I just have this thing. I come upon this thing. I like, feel I, you. I bet I, the I same also, thing if so there was horse on the menu. I'd be like, oh, or a dog. I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, I don't know. You know, it's not as uncommon as as you might think. I'm I'm actually I do the same thing. Yeah, that, and that's is there any other animals that are commonly eaten that you feel that way about that you were like draw the line with? Uh, no. <laughs> I'm now I, for anyone that's listening to this. First of all, one of the best ways you can support this whole breaking all mission and podcast mission is to leave a review on iTunes. And if you leave a review on iTunes, or if you want to reach out to me. Or Tez, are you on Instagram? Or I am. What's the best way for people to reach out to you? Instagram's great. And what's the handle there? There's my personal one is uh, Terrence Steinberg. And then the United World Challenge is also on there. Feel free to reach out to, uh, I'm, I'm kind of inviting that on yeah, your 100%. behalf. Oh yeah, if you don't eat octopus. I'm just so curious. Like if you <laughs> could share this. This is one of those things that like niche data that would be very fascinating for me to explore. And I'm happy for the Netflix suggestion as it's, well. It's Do you have any film. other suggestions for the uh, listeners to this episode? Get out there. <laughs> Look, um, there's a piece to my story, if I may share, please, that I, I think is, is helpful for people to understand. Because I didn't just wake up one day and decide to row an ocean, even though it sounds like that in a way. Like, I saw a film and I was inspired. No, this story goes back farther. Yes, there were scholarships that I wanted to pay forward, but how the hell did I get to a point where I believed I could row across an ocean? Because when I say get out there, it's like, well, what does that mean? Well, first, you have to stop bullshitting yourself that you can't do it. And I started doing endurance sports in 2008 while I was going through depression. I wanted just to feel better, honestly. And I started running a bit and biking a bit, and I started doing some triathlons. And 
one thing leads to another, I realize I'm a lot stronger than I thought I was. And not just a little bit, but like way stronger. Doesn't mean you don't have to do the work, do the training, etc. But what you can do in your life is so much more than you think. I remember, I remember when I first saw a film, a TED Talk, by someone named Roz Savage. Roz is the only woman who has rowed solo across the Indian, Atlantic, and Pacific Oceans. So Roz was giving a TED Talk about what she learned through this experience. And I remember seeing her talk when I was in college, and I thought, holy shit, she is so cool. It's sad I'll never be that cool. I could never row across an ocean. And then as the world would have it, fast forward, you know, 14 years, I've done 10 years of endurance sports, I realize I can't bullshit myself anymore. Ocean rowing, more than anything else, is a mental challenge. Being strong isn't going to sort you out out there. When you're alone, it's getting clear on your emotions and your mental state and being able to keep going when it seems like you're not going anywhere. And so when I say get after it, just listen to what you're called to do. Because I was first called to join my friend in a triathlon because that's what appealed to me. I don't do triathlons anymore, right? But that's what got me started on all of this in which now I can self-propel across oceans by myself and deepen my experience with the world and inspire other people. And I didn't know 10 years ago that, that this is where it would lead me. But now, to come full circle, Roz Savage is one of my advisors. She's a friend. When I finish the Atlantic, she says, you know, says, hey, congratulations, right? You just don't know where you're going to end up if you can just give yourself permission to go do something you really feel called to do and start there. Thank you for that. And when you said you, when you accomplished the Atlantic, did you? Oh, apologies. I, I meant Pacific. Are you, that's my next, Thank my follow-up question is your intention to do, you know, as your advisor there has yeah. done or anything around, what is the intention? If you don't mind sharing, and I, I want to give a disclaimer in the sense too that I've studied a lot of this kind of goal setting in a way and how to create, how to manifest goals and how to real, remove the self-limitations because I would go as deep to say that anyone thinks they can't do anything, that they're lying. That I, I think can't is arguably the most blasphemous word on earth. So I not only agree with like listen to what you're called to do because you can definitely do it if you're called to do it or you're definitely supposed to go for it so something else happens. That uh, yeah, any, any kind of, any limitation to me is silly. I mean, I, I, I believe that like my dream world and this world, I'm not sure which one's more real, but they're both, very uh, magical. They're both very magical, and I think I can l lucidly do things through both if I if I align myself correctly. <laughs> Just like if you align yourself correctly, you can go from California to Hawaii, but you have, it must be aligned. Um, yeah, and yeah, yeah. When you get really clear on it, and you believe in it, and <laughs> commit, because there's going to be all sorts of things that are going to test your commitment. You know, before you get out, as you're getting ready to do the thing, and then you think you're doing the thing, and you're like, am I even? You know, when I was on the ocean, there was multiple opportunities to quit, and I wanted to that first week. There's nothing I wanted more. I mean, when you hit that ship, I could have easily seen myself <laughs> being like, oh, okay, I'm supposed to, like, like go back Dude, and figure some that, shit out real quick and I, then go back. It was slow motion. I stand up, I see this boat coming at me, and I'm just thinking, fuck, I didn't make it far at all. <laughs> I was like, this is so embarrassing. I had built up so much hype. I have, like, whole team behind me with all this media plans. And I'm not even going to make it out of the bay, the marina. I was like, damn, this is so embarrassing. So, yeah, we collided. I thought, oh, no, I'm going to have to go back to shore. I called the boat builder. I said, hey, look, had a collision. She said, lean over, inspect the damage. Where is it? Quickly realized we're fine. There's a portion of the front of the boat that's designed for impact. If there ever were one, God forbid. And that's where we hit. And it was fine. So that was like test number one. Test number two, a week into the row, the rudder breaks. I'm still within 200 miles. The Coast Guard could come and get me and bring me back to shore. I was looking for an excuse to quit at that point, and I found it. I was like, yeah, you know, that's not what I told anybody, but it was a relief. When I found it, I was, I was glad that now I could come back, quit, and blame it on something other than myself. But again, I called the boat builder, and she was like, no, dude, we'll fix this. What do you got in your hardware kit? We'll MacGyver it. And I was like, God damn it, I didn't get out here to MacGyver my way across the ocean. I was pissed. But that was test number two, and test number three was fixing the rowing seat, which was ongoing. But eventually, 
I had to realize no matter what the hell it takes, I'm going to get across this ocean. You know, and there are plenty of opportunities. Things are going to come up for you. But when you get really clear on that, you're willing to be tested again and again, but keep going. I was treated to the most beautiful days and sights of my whole life out there. You know, and if I had turned around to any one of those points, you know, not only would we have not have raised the scholarship funds and sold ocean bottles to, to collect ocean plastic and, and so much more, but just on a personal level, my God, I would have missed out. <laughs> it was amazing. I can't help but think about, like, uh, Jesus going through the desert. In the way you're going through the desert of land, there's no land. Like, he was going through a desert of water and tempted three times by the devil. Are you okay. at all a biblical scholar <laughs> that you remember the three temptations? Uh, no. I remember, like, some of the power <laughs> of the world, all the bread you can eat. Anyways. Interesting. I'll have to. I know. I bet there. I wonder that. if there is a. <laughs> a universe, yeah, the seven, power of three. Yeah. It is a thing. And then, oh, yeah, I remember I, there was one other thing. I remember talking about earlier, like, what about anything like coffee or uh, any of those? What do you call those vices? Some people might call vices, like, um, we'll talk about legal ones only. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, uh, <laughs> coffee or alcohol or tobacco or anything. Or what is, is you know, there any of that involved? I, I enjoy some tobacco normally when I'm on land. I got out there, and, uh, and even leading up to my launch, I was so stressed out, I was smoking a lot, actually, like, Cigarettes, cigarettes, or, okay. like more than ten cigarettes a day. What kind of cigarettes? At least I hand rolled mix of oh, tobacco hand. with a few different herbs. Okay. So cool. So you're, uh, so you're up to the ten a day of those. More. Uh, okay. So you you're know, by the time I launched, I was smoking a lot. <laughs> choo choo chuck. Hey, I I can relate. I, I was just relate. I was just really stressed getting. I mean, up maybe not. I never smoked ten cigarettes a day. But I can I can relate to that when I I've noticed myself like wanting to smoke more when um things, going through the divorce. I think I smoked more than ever. Yeah, anyways, go ahead. But once I got out, like even just day two, I was like, I don't need this. I don't need this at all. So the, the need for vices really wasn't so much there at all. And the, there were a couple of times <laughs> when the rowing seat would break and I wasn't expecting it to. You know, if it broke and I was expecting I was like, okay, I know I have to make a repair today. That's fine. And we roll with it. When I fix it and then it breaks 10 minutes later and I lose my shit and I'm like, okay, I'm going to fix this. And finally I do four hours later, I'm done and I roll myself a cigarette. Halfway through it, I'm like, this sucks. I don't want this. It doesn't make me out there. It didn't help me at all. Uh, so well, quite fascinating too, because you know, I'm I'm a big believer in like the essence of what I consume, hmm. and tobacco doesn't grow in the ocean. Yeah. Just like what I'm, I'm wondering, was there something you were craving that would well, like out of all the things you consumed, or did you fish at all, or was there something that, some. that was like this was the best thing for me to consume out here? Like if I had to do this again. I would make sure to bring a lot of this yeah. calorie. <laughs> you know the crazy thing? Uh, honestly, sugar. It's just forms of sugar because I'm just burning so much energy and protein is not what I crave. That's what kind like, of forms of sugar? Like jelly bellies specifically. Jelly belly? The yeah. jelly belly beans? Yeah, well, here's the thing. Oh my I have a limited number of types of foods I can bring. That gives me like 43 different flavors. <laughs> <laughs> so I get to have all these different dishes oh one goodness. at a time. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty healthy on land. I eat all sorts of really good stuff. But out there, you also got to realize it's not a normal environment. Yeah. Your body is craving different things. And like I'm, I found just candy to be really good. I'm going to bring more candy. That's funny, too, because our roommate, Matt, or not our roommate, well, if you were here one day, Matt was saying when he was going through like a bodybuilding phase, like there was a whole thing, the best thing you could eat were like a bunch of um, gummy bears. Yeah, gummy Oh, my God, gummy bears were key. <laughs> yeah. Those were the best. Those were so good. What brand did you get? Do you remember by I chance? went to Sprouts. Sprouts, grocer. And you, it was it Sprouts brand? Yeah, okay. just the bulk uh, jelly uh, gummy bears were so good. Because my brother, Timothy, who's part of the Rob Ross, one of the few people I've been on the show twice, he he once was working a, a, a Aribo, Aribo, yeah, the yeah. German gummy yeah. bear promotion, and we had like hundreds of thousands of gummy oh bears God. on us. It was just like good. There was, there's like a picture of him out there somewhere in a whole tub yeah. of gummy bears, like <laughs> that, somewhere. That, when I was getting close to, to land, uh, I was asked, what do I want for my first meal? And I was going back and forth between dim sum and just like three pounds of gummy bears. Because <laughs> I was like, uh, both were things I was craving. <laughs> well, what was the arrival? Was anyone there uh, uh, for your arrival in Oahu? What, what the heck was that like? And what was the date of that? 71 days after July, whatever. 
September 11th. Oh, September 11th was the date you arrived in yes, Hawaii? Sir. Whoa. Yeah. I had a significant September 11th, I think, this year as well, but that's amazing. What was that like? What was the arrival there? <laughs> the shorts? So surreal, man. Well, first of all, I'll say I can really empathize with waves now because imagine you've been traveling for thousands of miles, nothing in your way, and then suddenly there's a pile of rocks. I'd rise up too, you know? You ever, like, you're a surfer. You ever, you know, I, you imagine people, or you hear people in popular culture talking about, like, angry seas or angry waves. Like, first of all, I don't, I don't feel like the ocean's angry at all, but if it if it were angry at land, I would not blame it. Anyway, so, you know, really weird to see all this land out of nowhere. I haven't seen a ship in, like, five weeks. I haven't seen a plane in eight weeks. Where in Oahu are you landing, by the way? I landed in Kaneohe on the north side. The north side, okay, anyways, cool. Oh, yeah, North Shore. The, like, I, one thing I know about the Hawaii, North Shore is flatter in the summer and roaring in the winter and vice versa mm -hmm. not as much roaring in the summer on the south yep. shore but it still roar it can yep. roar in the south shore in the winter in the summer yeah. anyways so you ride there on the north shore of oahu yep so we went i went to kenny yacht club which was a kind of last minute decision previously was thinking of going into waikiki but that's a bit of a mess like for various reasons there's some technical challenges to go between molokai which is the island to the uh southeast of Oahu and, and basically go in the channel between Oahu and Molokai is a rough channel. So on the other hand, I could skip that crossing and go into a much smaller bay, easier to navigate in theory. So we made the switch to go there and uh, met an escort boat about five miles offshore. And they guided me through the bay where there were all these, you know, submerged reefs that I had to navigate around. Um, but it was, it was so wild and weird to see land. And I actually rode the last 36 hours straight so that I could finish in, uh, in daylight, be able to soak up the views, get some cool photos. Um, and it was just the most surreal day of my life to smell land, to see land, to see my brother who was there and my sister-in-law who was there. They changed their flight to make it because I booked it so hard the last four days. I was doing like 75 plus mile days when I was averaging closer to like high 40s. I just decided to throw down. My brother was like, what, what changed? Like, why did you suddenly speed up? And I was like, well, I felt like my experience out here was complete. So I just dropped the hammer. <laughs> I was just ready to go. The best way I can relate to that, I imagine other people can, like anyone that's ever ran a mile. Like, mile two is the hardest, in my opinion. But, like, mile three, even though I'm more winded, I see the finish line. Yeah, like a 5K. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I know. It exactly. could go from miles to 5Ks to beyond. To ocean. That could yeah. even show up in ocean crossing. Yeah, I could see. I You know, once I, I could see on my chart plotter Hawaii's islands show up, I was like, holy shit. Because I'm looking at this chart plotter for months and you're seeing me, this little, you know, blinking light in the grand space. And... I know I'm getting close, so I just drop it, and I beat everybody there, basically. <laughs> so my sister and, um, and her wife hadn't arrived yet. My boat builder, who was my duty officer and providing like logistics support, she wasn't there. My girlfriend wasn't there yet. And my brother and sister-in-law changed their flights to make it there. So um, the other thing was massive quarantine restrictions, like get to the island, two weeks of quarantine. So we, there were various things we had to navigate around. That were a challenge, but personally, arriving there was incredible. It's just, it's clear, it's a paradise. Wow. So, you, do you have two siblings? I do. Yeah. And so, your sister has a wife. Mm -hmm. Is she older or younger? They're both older. My brother and sister. The youngest. Yeah, I'm the baby. And your brother is married to a wife as well. A wife as well. Yeah. Man, there's so many, so many facets. Once again, so many fascinating trade routes we could go down. I'm like, I'm wanting. To, I have. A, I we just hit the hour. So in the we'll, 11, we'll we, button it up. So we have 11 minutes here. Is there anything else you want to make sure you include before I grab? Uh, no, I, I feel it pretty complete. As always, you know, if, if this story inspires you, then I invite you to live that out and follow your passion. And if you feel inspired to give to the scholarship fund, would absolutely welcome your support. Just go to unitedworldchallenge.org and you can donate there. Thank you. That's 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 my plug. Other than that, Daniel, the rest. Of it.
Well, Love your it hit me because I definitely teased in the beginning about like shark experiences. Mm-hmm. What's what was your most profound wildlife experiences? And definitely, you know, people love to think about sharks, even though they don't like to. First of all, sharks are awesome. I love sharks, and we need to protect them. We kill 220 million sharks per year by catch. 220 million per year, incidentally. So by catch, incidentally, I want to make drive this home for people. They they might not understand what you mean. Do you mean by other fishing or what? Yeah, what how so does when that you, happen? When mostly? you when you get your tuna, and it's and if it's caught by a purse saner, which is like this massive net that gets drawn up instead of long lining, even long lines, you'll catch tuna. It's or sorry, you'll catch sharks. Bycatch is unintended incidental catch of non-target species. And sharks are one of the main things. We think of dolphins and whales. Yes, absolutely, those get caught too. But sharks are fucking getting decimated. And a shark is my spirit animal, and it pisses me off tremendously. Not just personally, but because they're a keystone species and the ecosystems collapse without them. Anyway, I only saw two sharks the whole way across. It might be worth researching what that even means. Keystone species, without them, the, the ecosystem collapse. collapse. Yeah. I mean, do you have a 30-second version of that? Just That's a big topic that well, I don't look, think many people are aware of. There's Every ecosystem is a web, and different species are dependent on each other. Some species are more important than others to keep that ecosystem in balance, and apex predators are among the most important. So sharks, for example, or if you've seen that, video about reintroducing wolves in Yellowstone and you saw how the reintroduction of wolves changed the entire flow of water through a meadow because it changed how the deer came out into the meadow, changed everything about how that meadow and forest grew because of the presence of this keystone species. And so the sharks are are that in the oceans. And uh, 50 years ago, I would have seen a hell of a lot more sharks. Even 20 years ago, I saw two sharks. I saw one when I was about two, three weeks away from Hawaii. And I saw another one on my very last day. It, uh, on my last day, I saw bird land behind me. And there are birds across the whole ocean. Every day I saw birds. Different species at different points. And Amazing. Birds incredible. in the middle, the middle of the ocean. I'm surprised. There were, if I didn't know that for sure until now. So there are certain species that can fly hundreds of miles on a single flight. Um, others that can fly thousands of miles. Some species can sleep while flying. They're incredible. Anywho, I you saw a species. I just want to take a note of that. What's that? The species that flies while they sleep. Do you know what that is? Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's one of the albatross species can do that. Okay. Seed planted for me. Yep. Learn more about that. But, but so, just look up pelagic birds. Pelagic is the term that means open ocean. Okay. Well, anyway, okay. I, I'm really passionate about pelagic stuff since this journey. I'm like Googling pelagic this and that and this and that because there's so many things, you know, from I, I scooped out snails floating on the surface of water in the middle of the ocean, like so small that I didn't know they were a snail until I examined it really closely in the palm of my hand and brought my palm to my eye and realized, holy crap, that speck is a snail. It's one of all these species that I had no idea existed, and they just somehow survive out in the ocean, like in the middle. Anywho, near Hawaii, I saw a booby land on the water and then quickly take off in a total frenzy. And then I saw this gray, big shape loom up beneath it and you know i saw the shark i felt the disappointment for seeing the bird fly away and that was a tiger shark that one it was a tiger right shark. off the shore of yeah. oahu yeah your last day yeah yeah hawaii has sharks why cool. river has sharks it was cool i mean i was just recently listening to a podcast with i forget what it was it's probably steve ranella and tim ferris but like one of these famous hunters and they were just talking about how much more alive they feel when there's apex predators out mm-hmm. there and i've been uh Learning, not only alive, but happy, overall happy. And I've, I mean, I've been studying this whole bison thing. Man, we are humans, especially when we came to North America. They were really good at wiping out some apex predators quickly. Yeah, real fast. Pretty sad. Real we don't fast. think the bison apex predators. Yeah, no, they're like apex prey in a way. Apex, okay, yes. In a yeah, way, that. they are. They, they got them down to 500, allegedly. It was down to, they were up to like 40 or 50 million, like yeah. it's arguable, but down to around 500. And now they're around 400,000. But there's other like you know there's there were there's not bears in states anymore, and then, then the wolves the wolf thing is an awesome conversation. I I think it's a polarizing conversation if you have it with ranchers versus hunters versus like your person that knows nothing about them but just like <laughs> fantasizes about them. And um, yeah, it's I've heard I've heard they they've started spilling over to Colorado Good. from Wyoming. Good, I've heard that. 
I mean, I think it's good. I think, I, like, my long story on that, I think it is better that they're doing it naturally and they, uh, because they, they, ha they can, there's, an, I think there's, I don't know when the decision's going to happen, but simultaneously with that happening, there's a decision to reintroduce wolves to Colorado. And that might mean, like, you fly and drop them off, which is a whole other thing. Where does, like, you draw the line between us being nature versus us manipulating nature? <laughs> well, look, we're at a point where um, we have to take this self-awareness and act on it. We are the universe self-aware of itself. And we see ourselves killing ourselves, and we have to take some action. And that involves proactively restoring ecosystems, I think. I totally agree. Well, like, I would say the main mission, one of the main missions with the whole tribe vitamins thing, like the underlying mission is to tie capitalistic interest in 100% grass-finished bison so that the ranchers see the viability in it. Because right now, 93% of people, like bison, I think, are grain-finished. They're kind of being treated like cows. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And, and most people don't know that. That's what I'm saying. That's, that's a major, absurd. So that's a major part of this whole... Grass-finished bison? Yeah, Should so... It just be grass bison. They're, what? Well, they're... they're that's, and I've, I'm teaming up with these, like, last few pioneers that are doing this. Like, the last few brokers and ranchers that are doing grass-finished bison. And one of them was like, I was like, I've been waiting five years for this call. I'm wondering, I, I can't believe it took this long. Because right now... There's a lot of demand from pet food companies for the organs, yeah. and they don't care if it's grass finished. They just want more. Yeah. So I'm um, kind of competing with the pet industry, competing Holy with crap. like uh, the virus of the mind and people not realizing what's going on, just like pure ignorance and a lot of other things. But it's a worthy – like I, can, I know these are challenges that I'm supposed to face. That, um, and your whole journey – your whole journey is like the hero's journey. I think of the salmon swimming upstream to spawn and die, like with all the ops of the bears, the rocks, the, the – <laughs> fucking current the whole thing and thank you thank you for following that call i feel like that when someone does follow their call there is a bit of a hero's journey element into that and man it seems pretty obvious for you so uh, i i don't know if you told me if you have any are you planning on doing the other oceans did you answer that or you well, any, i know i kind of interrupted with like no, you're good the goal talk like the goals might be you might want to keep those secrets so i don't want to intrude on any goals that I, are meant to be kept to yourself that's right i remember that question now look i left the boat in hawaii um, and I expect I'll get back in it. I'll just say that for now. And uh, from Hawaii, it's west. So I'll just I'll just leave it there, and I can say more later this year. And then best way for people to follow your journey one more time? Uh, well, United World Challenge. You can find that unitedworldchallenge.org, at United World Challenge on Facebook and Instagram. You can follow me personally at looking up Terrence Steinberg. And thank you once again for epitomizing breaking normal. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's. I think when someone follows their their heart's calling, it's usually not normal. It's usually not. I I totally agree with that. And I think that just like water and culture, they're supposed to be in movement. There's not. They're not supposed to stay stagnant. It's like we're supposed to evolve. This is part of the journey. And I think you're a beacon of that. So keep doing it. Thank you for having me, Daniel. Yes, sir. Keep breaking normal, y'all.